Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Equipped, Bruised, Tired podcast. My name is Bryce Crotchick, and I'm here with my good friend, Ryan Stint. How are you doing, Ryan? Good. How are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. We were just talking about interesting uh, diet strategies and, and weight class moves. <laughs> you had some good stories there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm... I'm not a dieter, obviously, as I sit here at 143 kilos, but every, every time I've successfully dieted, it's been with like some super fad diet. Um, when I got down to 120 back in the day, um, initially I was doing a diet called Cheat to Lose, which oh, um, that one. I can't remember. It's a book. And, uh, you know, what you'll find is that all my diets revolve around a binge day so, a binge day, like a yeah. big cheat yeah, day kind right. of thing yeah so uh cheat to lose you would eat it was all around like trying to ma- manipulate leptin levels in your body okay. so uh you'd cheat on the weekend or whatever day and then you would eat uh like um complex carbohydrates for the first few days then like slowly increase to uh um simple carbohydrates as the week went on so you try and maintain your leptin levels throughout the week because mm-hmm. uh, assuming that the binge would increase leptin levels i think there's lots of science around the fact that this doesn't really happen um <laughs> in that way uh, with right. a single day binge it doesn't really re uh, uh replenish your leptin levels like that yeah but don't quote me because obviously i'm not following this stuff that closely um so then i dropped down to 120 kilos kind of doing that uh but did it totally the wrong way playing like um racquetball not eating enough not enough protein i'm um, not tracking anything and like i just kind of lost all my muscle kept most of my fat so <laughs> but i but i felt very fast i remember that um, yeah yeah you were, for, you were talking about how fast you felt oh, super fast <laughs> i used to just run places for no reason <laughs> i mean it was it was a light jog really but it felt like running um and then i had to do um what was his name uh like carb night carb backloading guy oh um, i can't remember I definitely I remember that thing. Yeah, so that whole thing, same idea, right? Was know? that that was that Martin Birkins, the intermittent no. fasting guy, or was it a different different no, guy? It was, it was the same guy. era. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, I did that for a long time. Again, I got to binge one day a week. I find it really easy to like stick with something when I'm. Uh, we have that little have carrot that, like, reward to look. Yeah, exactly. To. Yeah. So and then again, a few years ago, I did uh, the slow carb diet. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, Tim Ferriss writes about in his Four Hour Body book. Same idea: legumes, lentils, beans all week for your carbohydrates, mm-hmm. and then yeah, whatever you want on Saturday, sort of thing. So that's that, and it seems to work for me. I don't know. I, I, obviously, I'm just decreasing caloric intake all week, and I can't, I can't match that decrease all week when I binge one day. Yeah. So. But yeah, that's my that's my dieting history. So, yeah, my what my if, question was whether or not we're going to see a faster Ryan in the future. Uh, well, right now I'm trying to do it the right way, and I do like so I do track my macros, and I and I eat uh, like I use um, Avatar Nutrition app that okay. modifies things week to week, mm-hmm. and so like I track stuff. But like I was saying, like if I don't see like decent progress week to week, like if I'm not losing a decent amount every week or like staying stagnant every week that I just lose all motivation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I'm good to count for like two or three months at a time. And then it's like, I just need to like chill off that. I can't it's be on the scale fast all the time. enough. Yeah. So, so that's why I think I find the, the binging, um, fasting sort of thing. And I should try intermittent fasting someday. I'm sure I know mm-hmm. there's no 
there's no real science around the fact that it works better, but it does help decrease caloric intake yeah. because you're not eating for so long. I do it so. uh, unintentionally most days. Oh, really? Because <laughs> I just will be very busy during the day and then around 4 p.m. will be like, oh, uh, I should eat something. Some so I've, I've actually been trying to like go the opposite way uh, and, and try to like get more protein at more consistent feedings throughout the day and try to have some nutrition around my workouts. Because honestly, since since I was in university, I've been very accustomed to just training fasted. Wake up, go to the gym, lift. Are you uh, a morning trainer usually? It bounces back and forth. I can train in the morning. I think I train better around midday. Right. Like between 10 and noon, if I start in there somewhere, I tend to be uh, more likely, I think, if I were to look at things to have a, like a better session, even just mentally. Right. But yeah, so trying to like work on some of those small things, which I think will help me get a little more consistent nutrition in because, yeah, I'm a 120 and I'm not... Uh, not super happy with my body composition at this point. So hopefully if I can like kind of jostle things in the right direction over the next little while. I mean, I, like I think being a natural trainee and going from 105 to 120 at my height, like it's kind of just inevitable. There's only so much muscle you can put on 10 years into your lifting career. Right. Uh, and, and over I, a span of like a year, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, so given 10 more years, probably no problem, but doing yeah. it in a short period of time is going to be pretty hard without some sort of um, non-legal supplementation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I honestly like thinking about being 120 for 10 more years. I'm not sure that that's, that's where my head's at with things. So I don't know. We'll see. My, my hopes are that I cut down to 105 one day and just, just immediately look like Russ Swole. Um, because that's that's a realistic expectation, right? You know, I I do remember uh, when I was dieting to one twenty. Actually, before that, when I was like one forty two around the two thousand eight time frame, mm -hmm. um, I remember saying like, oh, like if I'm one twenty or actually the time the, the weight class is one twenty five at the time. Right. I remember telling like Raya and Ryan Fowler that, um, yeah, like if I was one twenty, like I would have visible abs, like without a doubt, guys. Yeah, yeah. like I'm <laughs> which is be not true. Huge and yeah. shredded. Yeah, yeah, which is not true at all. It's uh, surprise, surprising to no one except for myself. <laughs> I'm hoping when I do make it back to 105, I look like a little bit better than I did before. That's in that's my realistic goal. Yeah, but um, you're pretty naturally like you're pretty naturally small. Like when you started lifting, you were 83, were you not? Yeah, and I had so. to like I had to bulk to 83. Right. So yeah. So you naturally lose weight. Thin, basically. brittle little bones. <laughs> The bird uh, bones. Yeah. <laughs> These tiny little wrists. I blame my bench struggles on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I if I stop tracking, and I've gotten to the point now where I'm a be much better able to maintain weight, but used to be for a long, long time, as soon as I would stop tracking, I'd start losing weight. Right. I think so. the best thing about tracking for me is that it keeps my protein intake up. Because mm -hmm. as soon as I stop tracking, my protein intake just plummets. It's like, yeah, I'll just so have the same size protein. Uh, chicken breast that Ray is having, you know, it's like instead of like one and a half times or two times what she's eating. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you're like, eh, I don't really want to force feed myself today. Yeah. So did we get a? You said we had a question from Instagram. Yeah. Did we have one dive question. Into that? Uh, let me pull it up here. I will, of course, have lost it now. But um, so um, 
Greg Probert asks, uh, well, he said, first off, he said, really enjoying the podcast. Uh, Thanks, he said, Greg. could you, when you go through what alterations people do to their suits slash shirts, could you explain what those alterations do? I'm an mm. equipped lifter, but I don't understand what tightening the sleeves on a bench shirt would do or tighten the hips on a squat suit. How do you tell they need tightening? I've always just used standard fitting equipment. I figured this might be easier for us to just kind of delve into mm -hmm. for, for a bit. Um, so I don't know if you want to take it a, a little bit and sure. Um, so in my experience and honestly, like I, I've talked to Mike about it before and I actually, I was picking Pete's brain when I was in Texas at Titan, um, a little bit about what, okay, so, you know, you tighten the sleeves on a bench shirt. How does that make anything actually tighter? Um, you know what I mean? Cause you imagine the sleeves get tighter. It has no impact on anything else, but the way that it's constructed and the way that it's sewn, the sleeve will actually kind of pull more fabric, um, or help to very slightly tighten the chest plate and, or will then not allow the sleeves to go up as high. So I don't know if anybody out there has used like a slingshot or something before. I think that's probably one of the bigger things that you get out of tightening the sleeves is that the sleeves don't ride up as high anymore or they're harder to get as high. But if you take a, a slingshot or a ram or a bench daddy or whatever, one of those sort of uh, like bench assistance things and you wear it up really high, it's not going to stretch as far across your chest because it's, it's pinned up into your armpits. But if you wear it down around your elbows, it's going to stretch a lot more. So one of the things that tightening the sleeves on a bench shirt does is it prevents it from going up as high. Therefore, it's going to stretch more fabric across the chest. Um, and for me, it seems like a way to kind of tighten the chest plate by proxy because I've had a lot of struggles with really tight chest plates, but tightening the sleeves seems to make the overall fitting and the overall working of the shirt just a little bit tighter without taking a huge jump to the next size chest plate. Does that kind of mimic your your thoughts or your experience with that, Ryan? Yeah, I think that's so. I would say like um, when your sleeves, especially like, so I know some people just tighten uh, low on the sleeve near the elbow, mm. but I like to tighten up higher. Um, and I almost think yep. that like when you pull your arms, when you start the bench, you can feel the back of the sleeve kind of digging into your tricep. So the closer you get that piece of material fitting your tricep, the sooner that starts to dig in. Mm -hmm. So trying to tighten it up near that point will start giving you more support as you come down sooner. Um, but yeah, definitely it's, it's it, like you said, it's, it's a millimeter, two millimeters of tightening that chest panel because the fact that, you know, it's, it's just pulling everything a little bit snugger across. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also a little bit of, um, and I don't know the science behind this, but um, the compression on the triceps as well. Mm -hmm. So um, I think even maybe just psychologically, um, when I have a tighter sleeve, I feel like I get a little more to the top of it. Um, sure. And that yeah. could be the stretch across the chest panel, but I think there's a little bit of a compression element on the tricep as well that helps. Yeah. Um, again, maybe psychological, maybe not. Um, the same, so like a suit hips... Uh, I think our, I like to, I like to tighten my hips up because I find they don't restrict depth the same as like, say, tightening your straps will do. Mm -hmm. Um, but they just feel like you just have more, I don't want to say pop. It just feels more support. Um, like you're, it's holding you together a little better. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so to me, like, yes, they'll probably restrict you a little bit to get depth, but not nowhere near the same as as maybe tightening up your straps would do. Um, yeah. 
So hips, I like tight hips, and that's why I used to wear the the Inzer suits because they have naturally a tapered hip, and okay. so they're much tighter on the hips to start. Um, so whereas the Titans have like a the non tapered, like they're almost like they're 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 bowed out at the hips. Um, right. So I find that really important to pull the hips in on a Titan suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. I think for me, it's a lot of that same feeling you were talking about with the kind of where it starts to dig in and where it starts to support uh, on the triceps is kind of a, a parallel for how I feel it It starts to uh, manipulate the strength curve or the feel of it in a squat suit when you tighten the hips. Um, so I think, you know, if you get into a suit and the hips are loose, like you're not going to get a whole lot of rebound to kind of like very literally sit into. Uh, whereas if the hips are tight, I feel like as you sit into the bottom, you know, your your hips, generally speaking, will probably externally rotate a little bit. And um, I think some of that helps to kind of just build more tension across the suit. Um, and I've definitely had more success tightening hips than tightening straps um, or having a suit with inherently tight hips versus inherently tight straps uh, in terms of just I think that straps play into positioning loss a fair bit. Uh, and how much position you have to give up to get to the bottom. Now, I know somebody like Ramsey says that he he is the opposite, right? Like he prefers to tighten the straps more uh, and leave the hips a little bit loose. So you're going to get some people that I think are on either side of that line. But yeah, that's kind of my, yeah, uh, my two cents. I think gear is very personalized and how you like it is going to be a little different than how the next person likes it. So mm-hmm. if you find that the standard stock fitting stuff works well for you, and you don't, you know, you're not, you're not itching to tighten it up, then, then, then go with it. Um, mm-hmm. Especially if you're kind of, um, I think in this episode, we talked with, uh, with Dean about um, his, his best fitting gear stuff he kind of grew with. So mm-hmm. as he gained weight, he kept the same gear and the gear stretched to basically custom fit him. Right. Um, and that's, uh, I've had definitely had the same experience where, you know, when I'm a little lighter and I start gaining weight with, with gear, it just fits really nicely. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's kind of my hope as I fill out the 120s here too. Um, and even moving from like 115 or 116 at Worlds to more like 118 uh, at Nationals definitely felt uh, a little bit of that for sure. Uh, I think one thing with the Titan equipment though is that it does it does give in, like it does sort of break in to a point after a, say maybe seven or eight solid sessions in it. So I think sometimes taking it in just that couple of millimeters just makes it feel like it's new again. And as insofar as I understand, that's a lot of the Ukrainian strategy is basically like use it till it stretches, take it in, use it till it stretches, take it in. And they just modify the same piece of equipment until you have Semenenko blowing out his suit, basically, uh, until there's like no more give left in it, right? But right. I think that's also another way to kind of maybe not grow with your suit, but have the suit continue to maintain its, uh, its, its tension and integrity until it doesn't obviously, but uh, you don't see that very often. I don't think. Yeah. I think like there's been times where Rhea would, um, almost take her shirts in weekly as she used it. It would Mm -hmm. be use it, take it in like a seam width sort of thing. Yeah. And then like, cause you know, just trying to keep up with that stretching as it's as especially the new stuff, right? The yeah. new stuff stretches way more than as it gets older. But so you just kind of like kind of match that stretch of it to yeah. find that that position that, that works really well for you. 
Yeah, I've heard that's a very a very Blaine strategy. <laughs> yes, I would say so. Yeah. When when Blaine has a sewing machine in his gym, that's there's a reason. <laughs> that says something right there. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Well, that uh, with that said, um, I did mention um, our guest today. So our guest today is going to be Dean Bowering, uh, a lifter from from Great Britain. Uh, Dean's been competing since 1993. He has uh, around 90 meets on Open IPF, which is huge. He's been competing <laughs> since. Yeah, he's. I think he said he started competing when he was 16 years old. Yeah. And uh, he had started out in a, you know, like a commercial sort of gym. And first time he went to squat in a in a real gym. I think he said he loaded up 165 kilos, which is. I mean, that's. I can't even imagine that. Like, Pretty impressive. Most people yeah. work work a lot of a lot of time to get to 165 kilo squats. So, uh, Dean obviously naturally talented, competed, had still competing, uh, but can be, been competing for a long time at a very high level. Um, and as we talked to team Dean about, um, his transition now more into coaching, he took over the, uh, the coaching, uh, for the open team in Great Britain and, uh, just overall really good, uh, conversation with Dean about, uh, lots of topics from coaching to lifting to, to stuff he's seen changing over the years. And, uh, and yeah, so I hope we, hope we, uh, uh entertain you and, uh, maybe you learn a few things from our conversation with Dean Bowering today. All right, Dean. Uh, thanks for joining us this week. Um, we are uh, super excited to have you here. Uh, we chatted with Allie last week, and she had uh, very high praise for you. So we decided we wanted to speed you up on our list and get you on the on the podcast right away. So um, first, you've been in the sport for a super long time, uh, and not to try and imply that you're old, um, but you started being quite young. Uh, the earliest result on Open IPF is uh, is 1993. But that's also a European championship, which I feel like probably shouldn't have been your first meet. Um, so maybe your history goes back a little bit longer than that. Do you want to just talk a little bit about how you got into the sport and how you were first introduced to the sport uh, and maybe how European championship was your first meet? <laughs> yeah, so it was, didn't take very long. Um, so I started college and as part of college, I was, I've never really done sport in my whole life, not really. I've not been into it. And, um, but as part of college, we had to do like a physical education. So I've, I knew that I was like, okay, strong. So, um, one of the options was, uh, like a leisure center multi-gym. Do you know the one, the ones it's like, uh, you just put pins in each station around it's mm, like a big mm-hmm. circle. Oh, yeah. And, um, but that was at a leisure center. So I went up there my first, first day and I could do all the weights on every single station and um there was but it was open to the public as well and a guy just goes you're really strong you should you should lift free weights and i was like what what are free weights i, I don't even know what that is and um so he gave me the address of a guy called terry morris who is a real old time powerlifter, and uh and he had a gym in his garden in southampton and uh i phoned him up and i went down there and he made me max out my first day <laughs> but i went in there as you do fun yeah, so I was, I I think I was still 16 at the time, and I did uh, 165 squats. This is just walking in the gym, never done anything like. So I did a 165 squat, a 105 bench, and a 205 deadlift. Wow! And uh, Jeez. and um, he said, "I said you're pretty good," and um, <laughs> and that was that. And I never really looked back. Um, I got, I went to my a guy there took me to my first competition, and. Um, I loved it straight away. Loved it. Not to say I've never been into sport before, 
and uh and that was that and I, I don't suppose i've ever looked back really when i started i think i went i qualified my first comp qualified for our national championships the british championships and back then you used to get a letter through the post saying congratulations you qualified for the british championships it's on this date if you just sign the form send a check and then away you go and um so my parents were really good they took me to everything and i just turned up on the day i think i came second on that day got invited onto the national team and uh and then went off to the europeans i think my first one was belgium that would be what you saw in 93 probably right so you remember yeah. your first so your first year was did you start that year then uh your first meet um it might have been the end of 92 I, I, okay you know. and you but said yeah. you were about 16 then yeah so when i started I was 16 but i think i turned 17 pretty soon so okay so that was, but that was before sub junior right you're just a junior yeah then. it was just under 23 back then right right yeah there was no girls either <laughs> um so speaking of this is kind of like a equip more of a quick podcast obviously by the name um you've experienced kind of firsthand the the generational progression of the gear um do you ever, did you ever think like well this has all gone too far or was it just like you know give me more sort of thing uh my opinion is if we hadn't have let bench shirts in there would be no classic powerlifting um I think that letting bench shirts in changed powerlifting so much that eventually that became, because it makes it so much more difficult to train powerlifting because basically of the bench shirt. I think you can more or less do it all on your own, if you, but bench shirt is a thing that on your own is a, it's a dangerous thing. Yeah. Totally. <clears throat> um, but even saying that, I mean, it might have gone this way anyway. I don't know. It's just my opinion, but um, yeah, it's uh Oh, it's very difficult for me. I love equipped powerlifting. I love powerlifting just in general, but equipped powerlifting is where my heart is. And uh, I don't know. And I should stop calling it equipped. It's powerlifting. There's classic <laughs> powerlifting and there's powerlifting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how the world yeah. champions are. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So and this is kind of a an aside, but. Do you miss the marathon suit like every other old time lifter I've ever talked to? No, no, <laughs> not at all. They used to blow all the time. They were horrendous. You ever have one go at the bottom? It's uh, it's not a nice experience when your ass comes out and everything. Well, they got runs right away in them, right? Like, yeah, they always ran. All of a sudden, when the ass goes and you're suddenly going down, <laughs> there's no, you can't stop it. <laughs> so, um, Just keep going down. Yeah, it's. I think Titan squat suits for me are far superior to anything that uh, is that was out back then. Right. Um, I just I, all the old time lifters I know always they're always like, "Oh, the marathon! You'll never beat the marathon for deadlifts." It was the best suit ever. Uh, yeah. So me and deadlift in suits have never really got on very well. Um, <laughs> I don't think. I actually think there's quite a lot of lifters around that don't get on with deadlift suits. Mm -hmm. um, the amount of people I come to me that in classic lifting. They say, I want to have a go at the equip. So they come to me and I'll like, we'll say we do squats, we do bench, we do deadlift. They improve maybe a little bit on the squat. Even just the first time they put it on, mm -hmm. bench shirt, uh, they never get a touch, but they lift loads of weight. Um, put the deadlift suit on or, or squat suit on to try some deadlift and they're lifting 50 kilos less than what they can do without a suit on. <laughs> and they think, oh, I thought the suits did it all for you. <laughs> You go, no, this is not how it works. Isn't this supposed to help? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does eventually, but it's yeah. it's hard work, isn't it? 
Are you a are you a conventional puller in the suit, or have you bounced back and forth? No, nah, always been conventional. I have messed around with sumo, but my arms are too short. Okay, and I'm I'm too round. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. Conventional in the suit, just I feel like that's just super challenging to get that sort of mix of positioning and actually being like having a suit tight enough that you're going to get anything out of it. So I think it's a it's a bit of a fine line with conventional. Is that kind of your experience as well? Yeah. So you get a huge pop off the floor, but then what happens is your I always found that your legs straighten so fast that mm-hmm. you've got no chance of locking out. So you end up kind of just hanging forward with the bar in your hands and you're never going to lock out. So it, it's almost when you've got a, a good suit that gives you a load of pop, you have to try and slow it down a little bit off the floor so that mm. you, can, you can keep with it and not let your hips accelerate too fast. Right. Um, but you get a lot of people do that. They just, then they're never locking out. You just have a looser strap. And then yeah. just really tight legs and hips and then a looser strap. Yeah. Um, so Ryan and I kind of sort of like, like we said, dug back through a lot of your competition history and uh, it looked like you had about almost 90 meets uh, on, okay. on the database anyways. <laughs> and, and we were both really impressed that only about four of those were classic. Um, so that's pretty cool considering a lot of people tend to bounce back and forth a lot. Um, what is it that, that kind of keeps you going equipped as opposed to getting into something else? Is there, is there something that, that keeps you drawn to, uh, to powerlifting instead of uh, classic powerlifting? Well, I suppose the first thing is that there wasn't any classic powerlifting for a lot of my career. Mm-hmm. It's fairly recent. So if you were going all the way back to 93, um, and then I actually have watched a, a podcast um, with Stian of mm-hmm. yours. And he says that he would tell himself if he could go back not to do um, 10 meets or 12 meets in a year. And <laughs> I actually would be completely opposite to that. I, oh, yeah. I love lifting. I think that my lifting improved massively by lifting every other week. <laughs> I loved it. Um, one of the big things that you see, it doesn't matter how strong you are in the gym, on the day of a competition, if your nerves come into play, everything comes into play apart from your training, you know, all the muscle memory, everything that you've learned. And I think by competing over and over and over again, you get so good at competing, you don't get nervous. You don't get all those things. Then what the work you do in the gym does come into play and you lift so much better. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. That's kind of like a... That would you say that's something that you try to instill in your lifters? Because I know Ellie uh, talked a lot about that same kind of perspective and wanting to compete Lift a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also, it's fun, isn't it? <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I think that's the biggest thing that I try and instill in all, all the people that I help is that you're not. Do, we were doing this for fun. It's you know we try and we try to enjoy it. Not um, if I think if you're turning up to a competition. <sighs> Maybe on the day you're a bit nervous, but if when you put that last deadlift down, you don't think to yourself, oh my God, that was great. I loved it. Then um, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably an important perspective. Do you think that's, that outlook on, on powerlifting is something that's helped you keep lifting uh, as long and as continuously as you have? Yeah, definitely. I can't wait for my next comp all the time. It's, it's tough now. Now that I'm coaching more than I'm lifting, okay. I'll still look at um, a lot of the lifters that I'm helping, they go to compete and all right, I might be with them, but sometimes I just want to be on that platform <laughs> and you think, and 
that's not to say that I don't love coaching because I've mm-hmm. things have happened in my career that have meant that it's very difficult to compete at a high level now. And um, that is also a, a punishing thing mentally. Yeah. That all of a sudden you're nowhere near as strong as you were five years ago. Um, but I found an avenue to still be involved with powerlifting and that coaching lifters on the day, picking their weights for them, all those things is I've, get so much enjoyment for that. I think I'm more nervous than them most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, actually, do you find that, uh, do you find that like a lot of people say that, that doing that kind of thing and, and coaching through a big meet or coaching a number of lifters is almost more taxing than, than competing yourself. You end up a little more knackered at the end of the day. Would you say that's accurate? If it, well, I don't know about the end of the day, but if you go away with a team of equipped lifters and you're coaching them for a week, they've only got to lift one day. Right. I'm putting suits on and wrapping their knees for five days. By the end of it, I need a holiday. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, I think uh, like going back a little bit, you'd really talk about how competing is fun. And, and I think also kind of leaning on the fact that competing is a skill. And practicing that skill is important. And I, and I see a lot of people who they'll do a meet and they're like, oh, I don't want to compete again until I am this strong or, you know, until I can hit this number instead of being like, no, I need to practice the skill of competing, which I think is really important. And I think it's a good point you brought up there is, is how important it is to practice that skill frequently. And especially, you know, with a newer classic lifter, you can compete pretty darn frequently. Yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes you have to look at it as you're only actually as good as your last your last competition so no matter what you've done in the gym if if your last squat was 250 and you've just done it for five in the gym and you think you're going to be amazing then you're wrong you you need to you need to turn up and think well my my pb is 250 i need to just try and do a bit better than that and that Mm -hmm. happens to a lot of lifters and a lot of lifters who don't lift very often they think that they've been away for three, four months training. Like we're using the 250 as an example. They've squatted 250 at the last meet. They've trained for four months. They then think they're going to be immense. So they open at 245 or something, jump straight to 265 or something like that. They miss it twice. Now their PB has gone down five, not up. And it mm. happens all the time. Whereas if they'd actually gone thinking my third attempt is going to be 255, 257, then they would have got a PB of seven and a half rather than trying to make these massive leaps. Again, that's a thing that I think about when um, I tell my lifters to lift as often as they can, because if you went to every meet thinking that I'm just going to do two and a half kilos better than what I did the meet before, and you do 10 comps in a year, you've done 75 kilos on your total. Mm-hmm. And, and how hard is it to put two and a half kilos on a lift? You're not asking much from your body, are you? I mean, sometimes it's real hard. <laughs> oh, wait, did we say we're doing 10 meets a year in this analogy? <laughs> that might be the challenging part for me. Yeah. I think when you get to the top, it all changes. But when you're starting out, it's, it's not hard to improve by two and a half kilos when you're first starting mm-hmm. out. You can do, you could probably do three or four years like that. And then you get to a really good standard. Then you start to slow things down, um, start picking your competitions thinking about what you're doing. You've also then got much more experience of lifting. You know what goes on. The amount of lifters that I see that they think they're going to turn up to a comp and they're going to lift this because they've done this in the gym and then they don't even listen for the signal. And it doesn't matter how easy it is, but they beat the signal, so they've got red lights. Yeah. Just because they don't have any experience. Yeah. And I guess diving into that a little bit further, um, 
a lot of those things that you talked about sound like, you know, really, really solid advice. Do you find that with the sort of advent and the, the introduction of social media that that's impacted um, maybe the willingness of lifters to listen or to learn or to, to give some pushback or have their own ideas? Like how have you found that's impacted the lifters that you've been bringing up maybe before and after sort of Instagram uh, and all of this became a part of the equation? Uh, social media has made every powerlifter after his first meet an expert. Exactly. Yeah, that's kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult now to tell a young lifter what he's doing wrong or what he's doing right because they always know best. So it's sometimes I just let them have their path and then eventually they'll come round. Mm-hmm. So you've definitely yeah. noticed that's made a made a difference in in younger lifters as you're helping people today. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure it's all social media. Some of it's just classic lifting. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But so, um, I find classic lifting has made it very easy to get into the sport, but also very easy to leave the sport. So I think we're seeing a lot of lifters that they turn up, they're really strong, lift for a year and then you never see them again. Um, right. with equip lifting, you put, to get really good at it, you have to, you have to give it so much of yourself mm-hmm. that it makes it much more difficult to leave it. You, you're like, you're so committed to the sport that you don't want to leave it. You want to be part of it forever then. And that's I think a really good perspective. In the same way with that, like with equip lifting, so often you're so reliant upon your team for safety, for their safety, for your safety that you build more of a community and then you don't want to leave that community because now you're a part of it. Well, yeah, that's the whole big thing, isn't it? So how, when you go to a classic meet, how many lifters do you see turn up on their own? They turn up on their own, they lift, they put their own attempts in and, and they warm up on their own and do everything. The whole thing, the whole day they've done on their own and then they just leave on their own. If you go to a, a powerlifting meet, that never happens. You know, one lifter turns up, he's got a team of people with him <laughs> and, um, you know, so it does make it. And I think even when you go to internationals, um, the equipped powerlifting internationals are much more community. I don't want to say driven, but everyone knows everyone. Mm-hmm. Everyone's very, very friendly. I'm not saying it's not in classic, but because you get that, it's more singular. People don't tend to get to know each other so well, so they can walk away from it. They lift and they go. But with, Equipped internationals, people tend to stay maybe a little longer. They would help anyone out because obviously mm-hmm. every, they know everyone needs help. So, yeah. Even I think in my, my limited experience in the equipped world, that's definitely something that I've seen a lot more of is, is the team is very much a team. And you'll have everybody from every other weight class volunteering to help out the people who are competing on that day. And if somebody needs straps pulled up or somebody needs an extra hand rolling knee wraps or whatever, uh, I feel like you see a lot more of that. Um, and obviously maybe that's just cause there's more things to do, but it is a, uh, it's a cool aspect of, of equipped lifting. Yeah. From a coach's point of view, coaching equipped over classic is night and day. Mm-hmm. Um, there's virtually nothing to do as a coach for classic put five on that, put two and a half on that, put two and a half on that. That's it. But with in equipment, it might be a missed first attempt or 
you make a massive jump to a third attempt and you pull the suit and you know make some adjustments and then they go and get it and you just it's incredible it's so much more exciting from a coach's point of view mm-hmm. and i think even analyzing competition right if somebody misses an attempt in classic you're probably able to say okay they were just not strong enough if somebody misses an attempt that you're maybe competing against and equipped it's it's more likely uh that there are a bunch of different reasons for that, right? It could be, could be that his suit was this, that, or the other thing. It could be that his wraps weren't tight enough. It could be any number of things. And he may put 20 on that and still go out and get it. So I yeah, think even I mean, when it comes to like vying for position and stuff, even crazy things like, um, just the, the body weight issue. So if somebody's lost too much body weight or they've not lost as much as they normally do when they come and they put the suits on, it fits different to normal. So then that can, can really change how the lifts go, whether they get them or whether they don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So going back a minute, you talked about um, how it's become harder for you to lift at a competitive, a high, high competitive level uh, internationally. Uh, and Ellie mentioned when we were talking to her that you had a pretty serious e- uh, knee injury a few years ago. Um, That's because she made me do an assault course. Uh, okay. Well, she did mention it might have been her fault a little bit. <laughs> Um, is that the, is that the injury you're kind of talking about or has no, your, has your career been fairly injury full or pretty f- fairly, um, injury free, I guess. So injury free up until the last couple of years, it's or four years, say, um, the knee, I'm trying to remember how it all happened. The, the, the actual, the injury that I've had that I basically finished my powerlifting career at a high level was um rupturing my auxiliary nerve in my shoulder so i came out of a squat um in the it was the last squad before the ipf worlds in luxembourg i think that's 2015 Mm -hmm. um and as i was standing up out of that squat um there was a bang in my shoulder immense pain and then nothing um and the reason there was nothing was because it's complete rupture of the auxiliary nerve which controls all deltoid function and touch sensation in your upper arm um at the time, I didn't know what it was. Eventually, I got diagnosed. I had to have reconstruction surgery, but the nerve, my shoulder's never, ever been the same. Um, I can't really lock out a big bench anymore. So, And without a bench, <laughs> in today's world of, of powerlifting, and without a big bench, there's, you know, of any, you know, when you're talking about going from 300 down to, I don't know, 220, you know, you take 80 kilos away. And the fact that it took me, oh, I don't know, trying to think how long it took before I could even hold a squat bar um, because I just couldn't get my arm back. The, what, the bar just wouldn't sit on my shoulder. Um, I, didn't, I couldn't feel anything anyway when it was up there. Um, so you just, that was that then. Um, and during that time, it's when other lifters started to come and ask my advice. And I found that I was quite enjoying helping them. And then it's a strange thing what happens is you find yourself helping people more than you're training yourself. And then before you know it, you know, a year or two has gone by and you're now, everyone knows you as a coach rather than a lifter. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's something that we talked about and something that I've talked about at, at length with, with Mike to share is kind of like understanding how that coach versus athlete sort of aspect fits into your identity. Um, in, within powerlifting, and and it sounds like that kind of happened almost just naturally with you. Hey, it wasn't like a a decision that you were going to start 
thinking yeah, that way or yeah completely natural yeah. I, yeah I never wanted to leave a sport so that that was never an option for me um I love powerlifting I still train as hard as I can now mm-hmm. um and but I also I love going to meets and helping lifters it doesn't mean I don't look back at 2009 open worlds now and again <laughs> just yeah. follow it up on YouTube and go oh <laughs> that was a good day <laughs> So, sorry, Ryan, were you going to say No, you go ahead. Oh, you're good. Okay. Um, Just just kind of continuing along that sort of transition from athlete to coach, uh, a few years ago, you took over as head coach for the the GB Open Equipped team, right? Yeah. Um, What what has that been like? Has have you have you I mean, obviously, you've enjoyed that. But can you tell us a bit uh, a bit about that and maybe some of the things that that you've learned or enjoyed the most? along that that sort of ride so i think so i was still lifting so i I, so what happened in my career i went from being a super heavyweight decided that it was time to maybe lose some weight um Mm. so i went down to 120 um was still lifting um but at the same time as lifting i was starting to help the current coach or the what there was a coach before aaron singh i was helping him quite a lot um, and then I think basically it was like a mentorship almost. Okay. Um, and then, uh, it was just a natural progression that it was his, he felt that it was his time to leave. So he finished up his last worlds was, the was Sweden. Um, was that 18, 2018 yeah. Sweden, I think. Yeah. yeah. So he finished up 2018 and then I basically took over from the job then. So it, it's been really good. I mean, I've, I've enjoyed it. I don't like paperwork. I know that. Is, um, I, I, I couldn't do this job if I didn't have. So I've, I've got a lady that helps <laughs> with all that side of things, hotel bookings, talking to the lifters, seeing when they're traveling. Um, without that, I wouldn't be able to do this job. I know that for sure. It's, it's an administration nightmare. Yeah. And that, yeah. Um... So, I mean, it sounds like I think we we know the answer to this, but in terms of, of transitioning into solely a coaching role, is that something that you see in your future or will you kind of always compete at whatever capacity you can? Uh, I think I'm pretty much already there as just a coach, but um, in terms of I'm going to pick and choose and I'll, I'll still lift um, at the nationals and then that leaves it open for me if I want to do, I don't, I'll never lift open, open lifting again. I'll just do if I if I do it'll be a masters competition. Um like I went one of the best comps I've done recently, although I, I still I bombed out, <laughs> but Mongolia, um the world's masters, I loved it. It was a great competition, really enjoyed it. Um again, shoulder let me down on the bench. Um so I missed three benches, but you know, if I'd have got a bench, I would have won that day. And it would have been exciting. <laughs> but I did have a good great trip. It was really, really good. And so you I got think a cup I'm, out of it too. Yeah, I'll just, um, I think I'll just look at where master's comps are. And if I want to lift, I'll just say, oh, I've not been there before. And I might go and lift and have some fun. Um, I was down to do the, the world bench press in, the, in Pilsen this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so bench has been going okay. And I thought, let's have a go. That's kind of a competition you can just fly out, lift and fly back from. I've been to Pilsen so many times that it feels like my local now. So, um, but obviously that wasn't to be with the way things are at the moment. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we had a, well, my son had a big year plan this year. So we were doing, it was his dream this year to do the double double is what he calls it. He wanted to win the sub junior Europeans and worlds and the equipped Europeans and worlds, but it doesn't look like we're going to get to anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so first off, like you should come to, assuming that the world is back, uh, in some sort of shape next year, you should come to Newfoundland. I think that would be cool next year. It's a nice place. I've lived Just there put before. that in there. Yeah, I know. In 2008, yeah. that was my first yeah. Worlds. Was it? Um, that was a, yeah, <laughs> that was a, that was a start of a very bad few years for me. That was. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that it in Mongolia, your shoulder let you down. Is it something that's kind of hit or miss for you? Is it, or is it pretty consistently troublesome? No, it's um, sometimes the lockout's there and sometimes it's just not there. Um, and there's nothing I can do about it. Um, the warm-up conditions were in Mongolia were terrible. Um, and because I'm now coaching, I felt responsible and I did help the rest of the team. Um, so, of course, I was, I think I was running around doing that, wasn't really thinking about myself. Then on the day that I lifted, um, the, the warm-ups were so rushed. Last off the squat, um, then you're one of the first on the bench. There was very limited platforms. Everyone's already got loads of weight on the bar. You're trying to push in. So it was a very rushed warm-up for me. And I just think I needed a little bit more time to get the shoulder firing properly. And it, and because of the way the shoulder is, when you, when you get to the top of the bench, there's just no way I'm locking out. And that's all it was. I just couldn't lock out. So never mind. <laughs> you can't lower it down, the weight, you know, no matter how much you ask them. <laughs> uh, you also touched on uh, your weight loss, which is one thing we want to talk to you about, because I think uh, back in 2011 or so, you were around 140 or so, 140 kilos, and you went all the way down to sub 105. And yeah. Was that, um, was that something you'd planned or what was your, what was your big motivator for the big drop? Um, so at 140, I mean, I'm only five foot six. It's not, um, at 140, I was like a beer barrel with hands. Um, <laughs> so the idea is that, I mean, it was great for my lifting. I, you know, I lifted really well. Um, I can't, I can't ever say I didn't enjoy being a super heavyweight because it, you know, I won a world open title in 2009 being a super heavyweight. Um, it was really, really good, but you know, not being able to tie your shoes is, uh, is another thing that you have to think about as you get a bit older. Um, so th th I think that was the major factor of me losing weight initially down to 120 was, um, that it was time to, to lose some weight. But then the injury in the shoulder was what drove me to go to 105. Although I sit here today at 124 kilos. <laughs> I've, since Mongolia, I've done nothing but eat, I think. <laughs> um, and just, so how did you notice uh, the gear kind of changing with you as you lost weight? Did you notice that as you leaned out, you started getting less carryover out of it? Like, you know, everyone talks about the squish of the suit and, and that kind of thing. Um, no, I think I got smaller suits. I think I've been in equipment that much. It's hard for me because later on in my training, I don't really wear equipment in the gym. Um, I mean, I've done loads of, loads of competitions where I've just done a 10 weeks straight classic lifting, if you like. And then I turn up on the day, put suits on and lift. And I've done some of the best totals I've ever done like that. Um, 
and I, but that's all about confidence. So like we're talking about, when you've done so many meets in a suit, you know exactly how it's going to feel. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. Um, and I think that it just, it, it was very easy for me to, to lose body weight and put the suits on and know that it, it's going to feel right. Um, the bench shirt was an issue. I, I ended up lifting in a much bigger bench shirt than I would have wanted to just because of the shoulder. Cause you, I can't lock out the big weights. Um, but everything else seemed fine. The only thing I noticed really about losing the weight was that round the middle, <laughs> the, at the bottom of the squat, there was there was something missing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had to change, come a lot narrower on my deadlift. Um, again, I was quite a wide, wide legged, wide hands on the bar um, because I had a lot to get down between the hips to pull that deadlift. Um, and as I got leaner down to 105, everything became much narrower which it was quite nice. The deadlift scene was probably the thing that I lost the least amount of weight off of. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I had a question here and I'm just, I just lost it. Um, crap. <laughs> I started thinking about the, the belly and then I just, I lost my question. <laughs> <laughs> Happens to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was going to ask you, Dean, with uh, I can like I can see a squat rack behind you there. Um, is that is that a constant setup, or is that uh, something this that you a, had to just recently sort of adapt yeah. to? This, this given is the, the COVID setup. This is the yeah. lifting kitchen. There's no gyms, and it's mostly it's for my son. So I mean, okay. Ryan definitely knows. My son is the sub junior world superweight champion. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, and he had such big plans for this year, and obviously still big plans for next year. So we had to find a way that he can still train. Right. So this is what we did. <laughs> a rack moved into the dining room <laughs> and that was that. <laughs> and how is, so how's training been, been going for Ray? Yeah, no, it's pretty good. This bench is moving on well, because obviously bench is the easiest thing to do in the kitchen. Squatting, <laughs> squatting is, uh, it's problematic when you're uh, trying to squat big numbers, even classic when there's just the two of us, mm-hmm. you know, and we're worried about, you know, the bar hitting the radiator, which is also very close. Um, and then we found new problems, deadlifting in the garden. You, rep one is okay. Rep two is a big deficit. <laughs> <laughs> it just starts working its way into yeah. the... Yeah, yeah. We've got, I've got like divots all over the garden now where this, we have to keep moving the bar around every, every time we deadlift. Um, but, and especially if it's been raining, it's an absolute nightmare that... that it's very difficult deadlifting off grass. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, so Ray holds the world record with 370 at 18 years old, right? Um, he was 16. He was 16 when he set 16, that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so with with his training, was that something that he kind of naturally became interested, like saw you doing it and was into it? Or, or did you kind of find yourself... Um, you know, hey, son, try this squat suit on, you know, kind of a um, little I bit of be, encouragement there. I got to be careful now because he sat right opposite me. Okay. He's way, <laughs> way bigger than me now. <laughs> so he's always come to the gym with me since he was like, you know, five or six years old. Um, never really did anything in the gym, but he's always been around it. So always came to Palatine comps with me, knows everybody. Um, so I think it was a, the natural progression was that he would start picking up a bar sooner or later. He's messed about with it. You know, I've got videos of him doing some stuff in the gym with me when he was very, very young. Um, 
And it wasn't, it was only just recently that he started to take a little bit more of a serious interest in it. Um, I can see him now, but I will say he's a very lazy trainer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He likes to do one big set of squats and then go and lay on his bed. That's uh, pretty much what he likes. Um, So I've, I've orientated all his training around that scenario that basically he does one big set and that's it. He's done. He's finished. Mm-hmm. Um, then sometimes I find myself begging him to do some assistance. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but it is difficult for me because I see so much potential. Um, but he's also, you know, he's 17 and he likes to go out and do yeah. things, but he's got big plans. So we'll see how far he goes. Yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, getting more into that coaching uh, side of things, like, do you find that it's a very different relationship coaching your son versus coaching any other uh, of the athletes that you've worked with? Yeah, very different. Um, when I ask my other athletes to do something or give them a program, they do it. <laughs> what, happens, <laughs> what happens when you ask your son to do it is you just get a lot of pushback and, uh, and a, a lot of storming out the room. <laughs> when it gets hard, I'm not doing that and just leaves. And then what can you do? You know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, probably a very different thing to try to switch between those two hats of like dad versus coach, uh, and figure out where those are appropriate. I think one of the worst things is that even with the very limited amount of training that he does, I can't stress that enough, limiting amount of training that he does. (laughs) Um, he's still squatting, benching and deadlifting, personal bests all the time um on the platform he's an i think where he's been to competitions so much with me what i was Mm -hmm. talking about earlier like the amount of times he's been to competitions if you see him lift on the platform he looks like he's been doing it forever Mm -hmm. and um and that i think has been a massive help to him and uh so he's and he's just (laughs) i don't know he tells me i'm gonna lift this dad and I say, look, there's no way we haven't, we're not even near to that in training. And then he goes and just does it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting. You think that there's been some, some like experience gained from even just seeing so many powerlifting meets and being to so many powerlifting meets that maybe he's got an edge, uh, where even on, you know, he was maybe wasn't competing at a lot of those meets early on. Um, but now just is so, so comfortable with it. Hey. Yeah, he's he's so comfortable around powerlifters, around um, a general competition, just turning up. And to know what happens. You know, when you're first starting out, just the weigh-in can be stressful because you don't mm-hmm. always know what's going on. But because he's been since going to all these comps since he was, you know, six years old, he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows, he knows all the rules. He knows all the time scales. So everything just seems so natural to him that there's no nerves, no bother so laid back and chilled about everything. Um, and I think that does help him a lot. And having the squat rack in, in the kitchen and the, the, the dining room there so that he can literally just squat and go to bed. Do you, is that, <laughs> has that helped, do you think? <laughs> well, um, the squat has been problematic. I think spotters, he wants spotters. That, yeah, that's I, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. I think um, for me, squatting with no spots, uh, even in my own personal experience, you tend to guard yourself quite a lot because you don't want anything bad to happen. Mm-hmm. So, oh, excuse me. So, um, you tend not to put everything into it or because you're guarded, you don't squat as well as what you could. Right. Um, so I think there's been 
a couple of incidents where that's that's become an issue with us and so we're hoping they, we've heard rumors that we've just got two weeks to go and then maybe some gyms are going to open so all right on that'll be good yeah but everything else is going pretty well so good um so on the topic of of spotting and squatting and safety and those kinds of things each time we have somebody on the podcast i do a bit of a, a deep dive and, and, and look through people's instagrams before they come on and i saw that there was an incident an equipped squat accident i quote uh with jack johnson i believe it was it was horrendous at, yeah. at one point yeah what what happened there if you're okay talking about that yeah yeah so um i don't know he was he doesn't actually lift anymore at the moment. Um, okay. He was, I've, I found Jack at just uh, some bodybuilding show we went to. He did like, a, when he was 15, he did 10 reps with, I think it was 210 on the deadlift or something. He did 10 reps in the interval. <laughs> and uh, he was only 15 years old. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. And so I went and spoke to him. And next thing you know, he's training with us and powerlifting. And he's done a few comps. I think he even still holds the world bench record, sub-junior bench record now. Um and he was getting stronger and stronger. We, obviously, if you train with me, you're, at some point you're going to get equipment on. Um, so uh, he was going really, really well. His training was going brilliant. And all that happened, he, he stood out. It was 350 on the bar. He stood out with it. He stepped out, stepped back. And for whatever reason, I, I don't understand, he just ran the bar back into the rack. Like, it didn't even look like he lost his balance. He ran the bar back into the rack. We weren't expecting it. He hit the rack the rack like any other rack it was fixed at the front but it wasn't fixed to the floor um and the weight just kept going and he was in it just kept going and kept going we tried to grab it grab him obviously when that weight's going over there's nothing stopping it no. so something that we don't we try not to ever do any anymore was there um the bench for the for the, the combo rack was in front of the platform um so of course when it all went over everything went down onto that rack jack actually it was an er rack his face hit the the bench step you know where you lift out from the bench step his face hit the bench step um when he went down but luckily the bar or the weights landed on the bench and on the floor so nothing landed on jack himself oh. um Oof. just the impact of him falling onto the rack and uh we went off to hospital he had some stitches in his uh in his chin <laughs> and uh apart from that he was all right he actually even on that day he was going i just want a deadlift i'll go i'll go to hospital after we've deadlifted and i was going jack you, you need to go to hospital there's like blood coming out of everywhere <laughs> he's going no no i'll be all right we're just deadlift and then we'll go to hospital i said you are not all right <laughs> but it, it looks it's a pretty horrific video the, the rear spotter if you watch the video the rear spotter actually goes with him the rear spotter grabs him to try and stop him from going forward and he basically just goes with him on his back oh, <laughs> all no. the way down. Yeah, there actually, so there wasn't a video and I'm actually, you know, now that you've explained it, I'm glad that there wasn't a video. <laughs> um, but that's yeah, it's just, there was just me. Some, I'll show you. <laughs> I'll play it to you. There were just I'll some photos it. and yeah, it looked like he had opened up his chin and uh, maybe a cut on his head and stuff. So yeah. Yeah, so the, the, his, the main impact was on his chin on the step but he bounced off that and then the actual step of the ER rack scraped up his face and it caught his eyelid and like ripped his eyelid as it went over. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's pretty bad. <laughs> Oof. All right. Um, we're going to take a total departure from that because I'm starting <laughs> to feel a little lightheaded. 
Um, all right. So the second one thing that I came up with there was uh, April 2016. Now, there seems to be a post highlighting a very special pair of underpants that were making their way to Denmark. What's the scoop with that? There was a photo of you holding a pair of underpants talking about somebody's underpants were going to Denmark. Is this, is that just like totally blacked out of your memory or? Yeah, I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. I'll have to look that up myself, see if it jogs in memory. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was maybe somebody's special competition uh, gear or something. Oh. Um, so I remember the question I forgot earlier. <laughs> so we're going to go back a little bit. Um, sure. You had been talking about that in the past you would go 10 weeks of training, go to a meet, put your gear on, which I think is like a pretty big departure from how a lot of people are training equipment these days. Um, I know even myself, like when I'm training gear, I'm basically in my gear every week, week upon week um, for, you know, 12, 16 18 weeks at a time sort of thing. Um, do you, for your newer lifters, do you try to get them to that point? Do you, do you feel like there's a benefit to staying out of the gear like health wise or uh, yeah, I don't know. I just want to kind of dig into that a little yeah. more. So, um, with Ellie on a build up to say the world's where she squatted 217, she wore a suit twice. That's it in this squat. So, um, I, I I don't necessarily feel there's any benefit. If you're happy and you know your suit works, um, you know, like I said, we're only working off your last competition. We're not trying to go, we're trying to make small increments of gains here. So we know that we work on a lot of box squatting. Um, I know that if your best box squat was 140 and you've done a 145 in that build-up, then when you put that suit on, hopefully we're going to look to squat just a little bit more than, um, than what you did at your last meet last competition um and that's pretty much how we work i think with the squat it works really really well um the biggest squat i ever did was 420 and i know the build-up to that the 10 weeks previous to that the biggest squat i ever did in the gym was 280 and i squatted 420 on the day just because i, I knew what i what it was going to be i squatted a i did a 280 triple i think to the to a low box and it was like yeah i know i know what's there Hmm. that's interesting because like when i when i started lifting um with jeff but i think you probably know jeff um he we were based the same way like we would kind of train you know a real general progressive overload for 12 or 16 weeks and then the last few weeks we would throw the suits on kind of figure out where we are were sort of thing um so it seems uh, just over the years we, we i kind of put the gear on more and more because i felt like i was never comfortable in it um so I, I, that's why, and then when I started working with Blaine, eventually he got me basically in the gear week up over week. And now I feel like I'm almost, I don't want to say afraid, but like, like it'd be weird for me to go out of it and then just trust that last week or two in it sort of thing. It's such a mindset, mindset shift. That's what I was saying. It's all about, it's not about, it's not about strength, is it? If you if you're if you can squat a max effort squat with your in suit or out of suit, it's still a max effort squat. The difference is the confidence that you feel when you put that suit on. If you don't feel confident, then you need to put it on in training. I've got lifters that I make wear the suit a lot because of that very reason. They're not confident um, to not put it on. Um, but also that is draining on your body, isn't it? 
I mean, how do you feel after 16 weeks of squatting in a suit? You can't, I don't know. I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> I mean, the difference is just your suit come off okay. So there is a there is an issue, especially with girl lifters that um, or female lifters, they're, um, they swell up quite a lot when they've got their suits on. Um, so they become very difficult to get off. Um, and then, and then that causes anxiety. Ellie in particular is somebody who has got huge anxiety about removing suits. So if, if I was to say to her, right, you're going to start wearing your suit every week now, instantly mentally, she would have massive anxiety about not about squatting in a suit, but about the 20 minutes it's going to take to get it off and her legs turning blue every time she does that squat. Um, and then obviously the cuts in her legs, all that kind of thing. She would be like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I don't want that. And, and of course, I, for me, I know that you can do it without wearing the suits all the time. You know, I completely believe that. I don't, the bench shirt slightly different to that. Um, I think you do need to practice in that. The feel of a bench shirt is very different to raw. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's not the same. You need to get some practice, find the groove and get it right. Um, but squatting and certainly deadlifting, um, nobody wants to do that. <laughs> I don't mind it. <laughs> <laughs> What's the, what difference do you get suit to no suit? Um, honestly, probably like 15 to 20 kilos. So, uh, so then in training 15 to 20 kilos, is it worth it? I mean, do, do you think that you would say, well, actually, um, if I didn't wear this suit, I might actually get more out of it because you would believe it more. Uh, I think honestly for me, like I do, I do change my technique a little bit when it comes to the, the equipped deadlift. There's some like cueing differences, some, some differences in how I think about the movement when I'm doing it. And it does like, it allows me to train a fair bit heavier. And I feel like those heavier sessions help me, you know, prepare for what that, that difference will be in the meat. So again, handling way more than I would raw. Um, I think for me, it, it it seems to be a pretty necessary thing. Um, a lot of times I can have a real big disparity between how my raw deadlift feels in training versus how my equipped deadlift feels in training, even in the same block. Yeah. So for me, I don't know that I have the, maybe the experience, the confidence to be able to, you know, hit something raw and be like, Oh, I can do this in a suit. Yeah, because I've, I've found a lot, too many differences along the way. There is one thing that suits do that uh, is nice when you put them on is if you've got any niggles, they go away, don't they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. If you that if was you, that was a big any, part of me getting into equipped lifting in the first place. Yeah. yeah, if you've you know if you've got little tiny niggles, back, shoulders, hips, anything like that, you put a suit on, and all of a sudden you don't feel it anymore. So uh, that compression seems to make a a big difference to the way it feels. Yeah, that and, and maybe even just an overload of other sensations, right? You're like, you go from this weird little tiny feel in your back to all of a sudden it's tough to get your breath because you're being so compressed and it's cutting your legs and you got these knee wraps on. So you're thinking about a lot of other things. That tiny little sensation yeah, in your back doesn't yeah. matter anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, that is true. Um, so you mentioned uh, using box squats to um, benchmark where you're equip squat's going to be. And that kind of made me think about, I would say, at least from my perspective, the box squats become much more uh, passe. Um, less people, I see less people doing it, um, especially maybe over here in Canada. But um, 
it sounds like it's like pretty much a, a staple for you guys. Um, how do you feel like, uh, I, guess, I guess, why do you keep it in? What, what do you, what do you like about the box squat for squatting? And so the, the main staple for me is like a, a light box squat, not necessarily a heavy one. Um, so like the second squat day of the week or the first one, depending on which way around you do it. Um, so we do a lot of speed work and obviously that speed work then becomes the technical side as well. So obviously in equipment, your squat has to be technically very good because equipment, if you're technically very good, equipment exaggerates that. If you're technically not so good, the suit also exaggerates that. So then it, that's how come you get a lot of lifters when they first put equipment on, they're worse, not better. It's because they're technically not as good as they should be and the suit has exaggerated that that failing in their technique. So with a with a box squat, you can you can really and a light box squat, you can really hone that technique. You can work it so so hard, like trying to keep your knees back. So I I I, I definitely promote a wider stance squat, um, sitting back into the suit. So so if you do it raw, then um, you're sitting back onto the box, trying to stop your knees going forward. That way you don't have to bend your legs as much to achieve depth. Um, and then obviously exploding off the box as hard and as powerful as you can, but you're only talking maybe 50, 60% of what you can squat. Um, and we wouldn't do loads of reps. We would do loads of sets. So again, you that whole setup process. So it's lifting the weight out, setting it up, maybe two reps, put it back in, have a minute rest, go again, go again, go again, maybe 12 sets. So it sounds pretty similar to like a West Side conjugate style. Yeah, definitely. Speed I, day. Yeah, I um, I definitely like a lot of what West Side do. Um, there's a lot I don't. <laughs> um, there's a few things I don't think technically they're as good as what they could be. Um, but yeah, I, I like the ideas of a lot a lot of what they've got, and it worked well for me. So, right. you know, I always think to myself, well, if it worked for me, you know, just a short round man. Why wouldn't it work for anyone else? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, your your frame is very average. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, did you have any more questions? No, I, th I think there, I, I, I could probably keep going, but let's let's keep moving on here. I think we'll, right. we'll be here all day otherwise. All right. So uh, we got a segment we call Gearhead, and basically we're going to ask you some questions about the equipment that you used and what you liked about it and those kinds of things. So, you know, maybe just uh, quickly take us through some of the pieces that you liked in terms of your squat suit, bench shirt, and deadlift suit, um, and and we can sort of go from there. Okay, so I always wear a, a Titan Centurion Superior squat suit, not custom, just straight off the peg. Okay. Um, a main reason for that is because I always found that if you get a custom one, they always seem to be different. So. <laughs> So you get one custom one, you love it. It seems to work really well. You ask for one the same size, maybe made by a different person. They've sewn the other side of the line. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what, how it works. And it, it just seemed to be different. So, right. but when I got, when you get them straight from the peg, they seem to always fit the same. So I just went down that route. Mm -hmm. um, most of the suits I lifted the, the best in were suits that I kind of grew into. Um, okay. So I, got them when I was smaller and then I got heavier, but I kept the same suit. Giving so me a lot of hope here. Yeah. No, I, 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 I believe that, that you kind of grow into it. It stretches out mm -hmm. with you. I mean, 
whenever you get a suit, your first time you put it on, it's so tight. By the time you've had it on three times, you think, hang on a minute, this is, <laughs> I'm just pulling this on easy now. Yeah. Um, so I should have got one size smaller, but that one size smaller, you couldn't even get it on. Yeah. So, so, but if you've got a suit that you've got bigger and grown into it, then uh, you can always get it on, but it's getting tighter as you get bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, bench shirts, again, I've always had trouble with bench shirts. I mean, I've, I used to, when I was 23, I pressed 240 raw in, a, in our bench press competition. 242 it was the, the British record at the time um, in the old weight classes. Um, and then I only ever, I think 305 and a half is the best bench. I might have done 307 in the old weight classes. Um, and I reckon at that time I could have pressed maybe 250 on a good day, maybe 260 raw. And, mm-hmm. um, but it, I just never seem to get the crossover that some lifters got. And I'm still fighting with that now. I, like, even with my own lifters, I think the, the, the Ellie works, she's got a suit going well. Um, she's benching well, but I'm, I'm struggling with a lot of that. The bench sort of stuff. I like the, the super cat. There's the low neck one. Mm-hmm. I think, um, but I think the main reason that goes down well with my lifters and with me is because it never feels like it's going to garrote you. Right, right. So, uh, you can really get the pecs out, get it high, get the front really nice and low. Mm-hmm. Um, and then deadlift. Oh, I just used to wear a squat suit. <laughs> I've, I've had a few deadlift suits. You know, what we talked about right at the beginning with just locking out, your knees locking out and you're left out hanging. You're not locked out yourself. Mm-hmm. Um but with a squat suit, I managed to get a squat suit that seemed to work really well for me for deadlift. Um, and I just, I always wore that. In fact, I think I had the same deadlift suit for like 10 years. So, yeah, I can see that. Um, and did you do any, any modifications of any kind to your gear? Like, did you, did you learn to sew? Did you have somebody locally that did those things or did you just not do many modifications? No. So, uh, nothing I've had, uh, recently I've got a, my deadlift suit has been modified, but that was only because it was modified for another lifter. And okay. then, and then I've had it back, but everything I've worn has just completely been stock. Huh. And uh, if you remember the sizes, do you remember sizes on stuff? People sp- always specifically ask us what sizes people wear. So, so squat suit is a, was a 48 when I was, that was when I was a super, um, bench shirt was a 54, I believe when I was, so I was 140 kilos. 54 and the squat suit i have no idea that i used to deadlift them <laughs> i think it might have even been a custom suit that i never squatted in um because okay. it's got some numbers in it but i think i just wore it for deadlift one day and was like oh this is nice i can actually lock out and that was that just stuck with that and the knee wraps are the is it the the black and gold ones the i don't even signature know golds is it the signature gold yeah i think so I've just recently tried the, oh, they're over there now, the Max Ram, Max RPM, the orange yeah. ones. Oh, yeah. yeah. Titan. I actually really like them. Some of my lifters like them as well. They're not so harsh on the skin. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you seem to be able to really get them tight and then not quite as harsh on the skin. Yeah. You get 12 revolutions out of those things or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Sometimes, and then... Some more lifters you can get. You, you lose count. They've had so many of those around. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Eh? <laughs> up and down and up and down. And then you you look up at their face after you put the knee ups on and they're crying. And I don't know what <laughs> you just learn to block that out while you're rapping, eh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then for squats, did you squat in flats or heels? Yeah, flats. Always flats. 
again, for me, it's just because I'm sitting back into the squat and I want to bend my knees as little as possible. So if, if I can keep my shins straight, um, then obviously the, you don't have to flex at the knee anywhere near as much. Because if your knee goes forward, a lot more flex in the knee it means you're, you're moving more to achieve depth. Cool. So uh, we also, oh, sorry. I was going to say, we also reach out to our listeners on Instagram and ask them for any questions they might have for you. So we got a few, um, uh, and I'll just go through. We, we pick a couple that we kind of like. We'll go through those. Um, so one question was, uh, what is the biggest change you've seen in the sport, both positive and negative? Well, so obviously the biggest change is the advent of classic powerlifting. Um, I think that's a massive positive the sport just because the huge quantity of more lifters the, the huge quantity the, the powerlifting exploded when classic became available mainly for me is because it was so much more accessible mm-hmm. um you can teach somebody to classic powerlifting five minutes can't you mm-hmm. um whereas in equipment it takes a lot longer um oh, negative for me it's going to be drugs it's always going to be drugs the the downside of powerlifting has always been drugs so I've uh, moved up the rankings a number of times through positive drug tests. And it's, mm. it's just, a, it's such a disappointing aspect of a sport that mm-hmm. it's in every sport, isn't it? But when you, when you've got move, I've have moved in a Europeans from fourth to second and you just think this is mm. terrible. I didn't even get to go on the podium and yeah. I'm now finished up second or even worse you finish in a position out of the podium and then somebody who was in on the podium test positive, I don't know, three months later and you think, well, so uh, nothing's happened to my position, but you knew they must, they must have been dirty. And you think I've been doing this for 25 years, slogging my guts out in the gym. And then somebody comes along, who has been cheating and it, it does, it does put a real downside to the sport as it would any sport really. Mm-hmm. for sure so actually uh, i got a couple oh, here before you yeah, get into the, the rapid fire there okay, Ryan. Okay. um so i got one question in regards to whether or not you've you've ever thought about um sort of making a business within powerlifting and offering paid coaching is that something that you've considered or thought about so when i first started coaching lifters did come to me and they offered me they wanted me to coach them and i did charge and I lost the love for coaching almost instantly. Really? Um, okay. I think yeah. where if it was my full-time job, it might be different. Mm-hmm. But what happened was I work full-time. I've always worked full-time. I want to train. I need to continue to train. And then add into that, you've got lifters as well. Um, if you charge, lifters expect. So mm-hmm. you, you want not only do they want results, but they need you to be there for them you know, even if it's just on the phone. Um, and if you're, if you're not, they can say, well, I'm paying you for this service, you know, and you're not there. But if I'm helping them because I love helping, if I'm not there one time, I can say, well, I'm just doing this because I really want to help you. If I can't mm-hmm. be there, I can't be there. And basically, as soon as I stopped charging, I loved it straight away again. That's awesome. So I guess, I, then I guess that makes sense if it's not going to be your full-time gig. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, and I think that's all it is. Um, I do have issues now and again with the fact that there's an awful lot of people seem to be trying to make an awful lot of money out of powerlifting when there's still not that many people that are doing powerlifting. Mm-hmm. It's not massive sport and people are just trying to rape it for everything it's got. Um, and I've always just been the complete opposite to that. I just want to put back into the sport and hopefully people will get as much enjoyment out of this sport as what I've got. Mm-hmm. Um, I got another one here about your thoughts on younger lifters getting into single ply, um, or, or maybe just more, more novice lifters. Like how would you recommend somebody go, uh, if, like if somebody's just starting powerlifting, but they're interested in single ply, what do you think that progression looks like? Or what would you recommend? Uh, maybe go and watch a competition and a, and a quick competition, um, see what it's about, find people that do it that are near to you as possible. Um, like I get people just come and see me and just to have a, a one go, you know, and then the, most of the time they actually quite enjoy it. Um, it definitely adds something to the sport. Um, and I'm never going to say no to any, especially young lifter. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it can be difficult in these, the way things are now with commercial gyms to try and get into equipped lifting because the way it is now, but I don't know about any of the rest of the world, but I assume it's very similar that the explosion of very cheap, um, commercial gyms that you can go and train classic powerlifting at, and, um, it's cheap and easy, but you couldn't do equipment there. You need an actual mm-hmm. proper, um, local club that is happy to have these guys that turn up with their training bags and they've got all these suits that they need near them that they're going to you know, on the platform, they'll be stripped down to their pants in no time while everyone yeah. else is looking at, and you, they need to be happy with that. And it, it's very difficult. It's, it's getting harder and harder to find these clubs around. Mm-hmm. What's happening now in the UK is we're finding that you're getting like these little shed gyms that are starting up all over because they can't find anywhere else to train. So, yeah. but those gyms are getting bigger and bigger and they're very equipped orientated. So, um, I think that's, my advice to anyone who's interested in would be to try and find a equipped friendly club and then just go from there. And I think if you really want to, they're, they're everywhere, you know, they might not be massive clubs and they might have ice on the windows in the winter on the inside, but, um, but you will, they are around. Awesome. Um, and one more before Ryan gets into, uh, I think Ryan's got some good ones here for you. Uh, but there were a number of people that, that specifically asked about your longevity in the sport. And uh, I personally think that's something that's, that's pretty incredible. What do you attribute that many years of consistent, per, consistent performance and progression? Um, what, what do you think are some of the keys that, that sort of allowed you to, to continue on that way? I don't really know. I, I think loving the sport has been massive that, I can't imagine my life without powerlifting. Mm-hmm. So I think if, if you really want to do it, no matter what, you're going to go. I mean, I, I have got been to meets that I probably shouldn't have lifted in, um, you know, bits hanging off. <laughs> but I still went <laughs> to do it because it was just the way it is. I just always wanted to compete. Um, I definitely, if you were to say you can either compete or train, you can only do one or the other. Um, competing would be what I would choose. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you know, I would just compete every week and that would be my training. Um, be, just because it's, it's so enjoyable to me to compete. 
you know, not just the actual lifting, do you know, like it's the people, mm. the whole event turning up. I don't know. It's just um, some of the countries I've been to that you'd never have been to if it wasn't for powerlifting. The people you've met, you've met, you would never have met if it wasn't for powerlifting. And powerlifters come from all walks of life. You know, you could have a bin man to a brain surgeon. Whereas I think there's not many sports that are like that around the world. They've they've got a particular niche of where athletes come from through the universities and all this kind of thing where powerlifters can come from anywhere because loads of people just want to go to the gym and then they find powerlifting and realize that, you know, it's the greatest sport in the world. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Am I good to go? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so I, I'll assume that you know who Dave Murray is. <laughs> yes, I know who Dave Murray okay. is. So, so Dave spammed me with about 20 questions. But I'm just going to like rapid fire five of my favorites to you. So I assume these are all trolley questions trying to dig at you, but I just grabbed oh, no a few doubt. that I could. <laughs> yeah, um, I just, just say Dave's a very good friend of mine. Okay. Uh, and we actually train together. So, uh. Okay. <laughs> uh, so he said, uh, well, his first question was, what was powerlifting like back in the glory days? Uh, there was a lot more fighting in the hotel rooms. That's what we used <laughs> 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 it's a lot more civilized these days. There used to be a lot more um, rough and tumble. I think that was to do with, I mentioned at the beginning, there was no girls. So in my, when I first started powerlifting, there was, you had men's competitions and you had women's competitions. Um, and it, it was a few years before they got mixed. And I think when you put a load of lads together and you're all in a hotel room, you're, one thing happens is you all end up, oh, Nick, go into his room and turn his room over. Or... Um, <laughs> Or go into his room and surprise him and smash him up. I don't know. There used to be a lot more of that stuff like that used to go on. Um, so, yeah, we've had, uh, I can remember once, uh, uh, oh, I don't even know if I should say stuff like this. I was seeing, um, seeing a, a very, very famous, I'm not going to say his name, I can't, very famous powerlifter um, from years ago holding another lifter up against the wall by the throat saying, I'm, I'm lifting tomorrow. You've already lifted. Now shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's um they were eventful times and i think powerlifting has moved on a lot from that it's a lot more professional now um some of that i could look back and say well, it's changed so much that maybe it was a lot more enjoyable outside of the competition than it is now but because it's so more professional the weights that were being lifted have moved on like phenomenally now so that's a massive plus okay uh, is Butterbean a relative of yours? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, this this might be a philosophical question. I'm not sure. Uh, but is it true that if you're traveling north, you're always traveling uphill? Oh, Dave is going to get hit so hard. <laughs> uh, no, that's just something my dad said once. That's why he's asked that question. Okay. If you're traveling north, it must be uphill because look at the globe. <laughs> uh how much ibuprofen can you take before you're no longer considered drug free uh that's an infinite amount of ibuprofen okay it's, uh, yeah it's not on the <laughs> no, ban list no limit. there is no limit to that uh and the last one is lardy cake anabolic i hope not because it's my favorite <laughs> <laughs> and i need to ask what is lardy cake because i don't know Oh, oh God, I've got to try and explain it. So it's like a, it's a pastry, basically. So it's um, 
like a bread with sultanas in it, and then it's got caramelized sugar over the top that is kind of with fat that is all run down through it, and it's very nice. Sounds, Sounds pretty good. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. <laughs> okay. So like I said, there's a lot more by Dave, but I'll just, those are the five that I kind of picked out of there. Uh, and the last one I had was, uh, what are some of your best training numbers? And, and maybe this would, there wouldn't, they'd be worse than your meets. Cause it sounds like you kind of left everything on the platform, but was there any numbers you left in the gym that you kind of missed out on the platform? Uh, so the only number that is better than I've ever done in the, in the, um, in the, in a gym to a meet is I once pulled 380. Ooh. So, um, that's it. That was, a, that was a glory day in the gym that I just was having a bash and it just, I don't know what happened there that day. Um, so my best pulling comp was three, six, five, but apart from that, everything else. So people are always shocked at the numbers I used to move in the gym to what I could move in the platform on the platform. Um, but I always said, which way around would you want it? Like mm. if you had to choose, you'd always have it on the platform. There's no good if you can squat four fifty in the gym, but only three ninety on the platform. It's, uh, you don't want that. You want to be able to squat the biggest weight you can possibly squat on a day. And it's it's a wasted lift in the gym, isn't it? Yeah. More or less, I, yeah. I, I think there's too much. Uh, People do it in, for the gram, don't they? Yeah, exactly. exactly yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they end up leaving it in the gym and not on the platform. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Leaving it on the gram. Yeah. All right. So that was my last uh, listener question. Um, so now we have a, a segment that are common questions we kind of ask all of our guests. So, um, We'll start by saying, uh, and I think you maybe mentioned this, but uh, what would be the highlight of your lifting career so far? So um, can I have more than one? There's a of few. Course, sir. Yeah. Of so, yeah. So I think um, for me, obviously, winning the World Open in India in 2009, incredible day of lifting for me. I went nine for nine. Didn't seem to matter what was going on the bar. It was getting lifted that day. Um, it was such a traumatic lead up to that competition because we um, – actually didn't have any visas when we came to the airport to try and fly out to that because there was a mix up. We thought we didn't need them. We had a special letter that was going to get us into India. Um, but we didn't. Um, so most of the team never even made it to India that year. Um, we had to go to the embassy and we got like an accelerated visa. And then there was, I think there was just three of us that ended up traveling to India to compete. And we, we got out there right at the end of the week, just in time for, me to compete so I literally landed the day before at like 3 a.m or something and then competed the next day and it but it just didn't seem to matter what went on the bar it was you know it was my day that day mm -hmm. um so that's that's one um another one for me is probably again my best ever performance which I actually came fourth was the 2014 world championships in Denver um, but I was the first person to ever achieve a 600 Wilkes in the UK. So there's only two more since then, but, <laughs> um, Ellie being one of them. So, right. uh, so that, that I, I lifted so well that day, but I came fourth, <laughs> but never mind. Um, and then I think the next highlight for me will be watching Ray win the world sub juniors, yeah. you know, coaching him. And that squat for me, it was still, I can feel it now just turning around inside me, watching him go out. Cause obviously the squat beforehand, when he broke the world record, the first time that he had to re-rack that just literally being his dad sort of being so proud and so terrified all at the same time is, uh, that's gotta be for me. 
one of my top moments. And on the flip side of that, uh, what would you say are some of, or, or one of the lowest points, uh, in your lifting career? And as a sort of second part to that, what, what did you maybe learn or what were you able to sort of take forward from that, uh, as a positive? Well, if I go to the, the lowest point of my powerlifting career started in Newfoundland. Um, and when I, I bombed at three internationals in a row, um, it was pretty horrific. Um, they threatened to kick me off the team. Um, it was, uh, it was a bad time, but obviously the fourth competition of that, of that run was India. So it's, um, it's one of those things. I mean, you can't, I can't explain the feeling when, so one of these competitions was a Europeans and I was in first place and you know how the scoreboard works, your name's at the top, you're in first place and by the time I'd got to the end of the bench, I was in last place and then I still got a gold on the deadlift and it's just like, this is horrendous. If I'd have just got one bench that day, I would have won that by 40 kilos. I could have opened raw, you know, but you can't go back. You can't, mm-hmm. that, 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 so they're proper low moments, but some part of me feels that it's meant to be because all of that led to me going nine for nine at the world championships in India. So I don't know, but I, I look back at that and I think if I'd have just done things a little different, um, the Newfoundland one, I was injured at the time. Then I had to try and make body weight. And I just think if I'd have just lift, you're allowed to change your body weight on the day there. I think if I hadn't tried to make body weight, lifted in the next weight class up, lifted as a super, I think I wouldn't have bombed and I would have done much better. Um, yes, you can look back and change all those things and what ifs, couldn't you? But they, they were sad. It was a sad run for me, paying out all my own money <laughs> to travel yeah. abroad to just end up, you know, in a little ball crying somewhere because you could have achieved so much, but instead you've been disqualified. It's a, it's a hard, hard lesson to learn. And you think that those, those three bomb outs were... I mean, they, they were in a historical sense, but, uh, in terms of like the lessons learned, do you think that those really contributed to that, to that victory in India? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Because I went there believing that, that I'm not letting that happen again. I mean, obviously I went there every competition, but it was just like, it, this is not happening. I'm not doing this again. So I actually, I've, you know, I reevaluated everything. My numbers got lower that the openers got lower. You work harder to try and make sure that, that you're going to get this bench. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough time. Uh, next would be, uh, who would you say have been some of your biggest inspirations through the years and doesn't necessarily need to be powerlifters, but, um, so inspired me and believing in me would be Aaron Singh. Um, so obviously he coached me before that I was coached by a guy called Ron Reeves. Um, he was an incredible guy, amazing at picking numbers just seemed to know what you could lift as well, as does Aaron. Um, I think he had so much, Aaron had so much belief in me that um, that really spurred me on to keep lifting and to, to keep pushing, striving to win the world title. Um, I think uh, that in terms of lifters, I don't really know. Pretty early on in my powerlifting career, I did have somebody that I absolutely like, thought this is the guy I want to be like. Um, then he tested positive. So I think from that day forward, I kind of don't let myself uh, see lifters in that way um, because 
if you think, oh, that is a great lifter, truly great lifter, and you, you respect them so much, and then all of a sudden, and you never know about any lifter, um, and then it all just gets washed away. I was always of that belief that if everyone is drug-free to me, you know, so I just have to see it as that. That's what I've always believed, is that if I can win a world title drug-free, anybody can. Mm-hmm. So, because there is people around that don't believe that. <laughs> Yeah, that's for sure. Um, what what what's what one piece of advice um, that you wish you could give yourself when you were just starting out? Like, if you could take, if you could take, uh, you know, sixteen or seventeen year old Dean before his first big meet, you know, what would you uh, what would you try to impart? Oh, first thing I'd say is buy that gym when you was offered it when you were eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's, I think that's the, but as for lifting wise, I think I would say get a coach sooner. Um, I spent, I spent the first 10 years just doing it myself, basically reading bodybuilding magazines. Um, so I think if I'd have got help sooner, I could have been a lot better, got quicker. I don't know if I'd have got any better, you know, I I don't know if I'd have actually got, but I think I would have been there sooner. So then Mm -hmm. maybe I could have held them top numbers just that little bit longer mm-hmm. than what I did. Um, I don't think I'm going to change anything else. I mean, obviously I wouldn't like to get injured, but I, I, if I look back on it, I've not really had that many injuries. It's not, you know, um, so I'm not going to tell myself to stretch more or any of those things because I didn't really get that injured. Um, mm. It was just when I come to the end. But when you're, what are you saying, 25 years into you know, elite level powerlifting, I think my body just said, come on, <laughs> I've had enough now. <laughs> so whereabouts in the, in your career did you end up getting sort of your first coach? Um, yeah. So I think, so we're looking around the 2000, maybe around that okay. sort of, yeah. So I'm probably seven or eight years in, mm-hmm. um, just, and basically I just found my own way. Um, I never really had a coach. I just, um, I think I bought a, my first world championships was in Hamilton, Canada. Um, it was the juniors and masters combined. And I think I bought like a binder, um, book. I'm desperately trying to remember what it was called, but it was like a guide to powerlifting. Was it Um, Bill Jameson's book? It might be. Yeah. It's like a big white A4. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I've got it, but it's at work. (laughs) Still got it. Um, and I just, I read that and I kind of, and then the way I went and I, cause we didn't really, I didn't do the internet or anything like that back then. You just, so when I got that book, that was kind of what I used as a guide to train. Um, like I say, I used to wear a suit twice a week back then. Um, it would be straps down on a Monday and straps up on a Friday. Um, and that, that's how it went for, you know, seven or eight years. But I think, um, when I got my first coach, things changed. Lifting definitely got a lot easier. Um, meet days got a lot easier because somebody was guiding me and saying, look, this is what you want to do. Um, maybe a nutritionist as well. <laughs> <laughs> Those peanut M&Ms didn't go far enough. Um, that's, I think I always enjoyed powerlifting because it meant you could eat what you want. But when you look into it now, it's not quite like that. <laughs> Lardy cakes are not the the go-to <laughs> they're not the go-to no <laughs> <laughs> um 
still going to try to find some, I think. Um, so what would you say? I know we talked about Jack and, and a, a pretty serious mishap before. Um, what, what's been your closest call? Have you ever had an accident or anything like that? Um, no, nothing bad has ever really happened. Good. Um, yeah, I think I've, I've seen a couple, um, mm-hmm. over the years. There was a, in South Africa at the world's, I can't remember what it was. Um, I think it was a Ukrainian lifter, the bench flipped over his head but the spot I missed it but it was on a, an older rack and it didn't get the one side went onto the safeties but the other side went behind the safeties and down to the floor mm-hmm. and it just broke his arm um Ugh. yeah you can imagine that's not very comfy um and then I think another one was in in uh Pilsen where a Norwegian lifter I can't remember his name he re-racked his squat um, and he had the racks in and his forearm was actually in the rack when the bar went down and it just sliced straight through his arm. Um, there was, there was, it was like a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're the, they're the things I've seen, but it, I think powerlifting on the whole is pretty safe, isn't it? So uh, yeah, I think those stories are usually nothing. Yeah. between. Well, if, if that's the only two stories I've, or three stories, including Jack, that I've got from 25, 26 years of international powerlifting, it must be pretty safe. Yeah. Um, do you have, uh, and this was this is actually a lifter question or a, a listener question I got, but I knew I had it in the comment questions. Do you have uh, one raw lifter you'd love to see go into equipment? Hmm. I think... I don't know. It's uh, um, Ray, I know her name. What's um, the incredible 84 kilo American girl? Amanda Lawrence. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because I think her lifts actually lend itself. She already squats a bit like an equipped lifter. Um, so, and, and obviously she pulls sumo. So, she'll get maybe get a bit more out of the deadlift, but she's already phenomenally strong. But um, I think I'd like to see her in equipment. And lastly, do you have any sort of, I mean, I know things are very much up in the air right now, but do you have any concrete goals uh, or things that you're aiming for right now? Uh, competitions that you're hoping will open up on the horizon or, uh, or anything like that? I'd love to get the Stavanger. <laughs> um desperately praying for that because obviously they've moved the juniors to there as well so mm-hmm. Ray could lift and I've got loads of lifters that are champing at the bit on the team that want to go and compete they've all found a way to train by hook mm-hmm. or crook they found a way um, so I'm hoping that we get to go there um, not nothing the less I love Norway anyway so it's great when I, I've lifted there twice before myself and um, they both times were absolutely phenomenal competitions um, like absolutely packed crowds. They had like, I don't know, these things that like loud clappers that made noises. Um, there was like, you know, and it was like 3000 people every day packed out. Oh, wow. Just, um, yeah. Phenomenal. The setup was incredible. Like warm up in the warm up, there was probably like 10 racks, um, masses of room. Um, and the platform was done in such a way that there was like the lighting was incredible. You know, it's just phenomenal. All tiered seating. Yeah. yeah. I'm hoping that it's going to be like that again. And I want to go because 
No, nothing else. I've told all the lifters that that's what it's going to be like. <laughs> I want to go there and see it. <laughs> yeah, so I would like to do that just to just so that we actually get some lifting this year would be nice. Um, I think Ellie is on form as well, so it will be sad if she doesn't get to compete. Um, I think she's a good friend, but I don't know how much longer she's going to carry on before she decides that she's going to become a family. And then, and then I don't know what happens to her powerlifting after that. Yeah, no, it's, I think uh, one of, still one of my favorite worlds ever is 2013 Norway. It's just the atmosphere, the DJ, the lights, the yeah. everything, everything was just so top-notch. Yeah. Yeah, it was phenomenal that day. I lifted well as well, came second. It's good. <laughs> it's better than I did, I'm sure. I can't I placed there, so... But cool. That's uh, that's our 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 roster of questions for you. Is there anything else you? I don't know anything you want to talk about beyond that. Uh, any, anything you want to? No, it's been good. I've enjoyed if, it. If anyone uh, wants to keep up with your lifting or or uh, anything like that, if they want to reach out to you. Where can they Where can they best find you? Um, you can find me on social media, but I, I don't really post. <laughs> I put the odd thing up here and there, but I'm I don't know. I'm not a social media whore. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> um, I, I don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm not an avid poster or anything like that. But obviously, you can find me on social media if you want to send me a message. I'll um, I'll answer, and if if you want my help, I'll try my best. Um, yeah, it's been good. Great. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Thanks well, for thank uh, giving us some of your time. No problem. All right. We want to thank you for listening to the Equipped, Bruised, and Tired podcast. We're going to be available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever fine podcasts are found. So make sure to leave your five-star rating if you enjoyed the show and a review as well and or check out our video version of the show on our YouTube channel. If you have any questions for ourselves, guest suggestions, or questions for our guests, you can go ahead and contact us at equippedbruisedtired at gmail.com and make sure to do your part to spread the word of the equipped renaissance. We'll see you next time.